If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts chapter 11. Uh, We're going to wrap up this series that we've called Catalytic today. And I thought as we started, uh, one of the things as I get older, I'm realizing I don't remember what stories I've told and what stories I haven't told. I also don't remember what stories I've told to family members that attend this church and what stories I haven't told. So I may very well be in trouble after this service. I, don't, I just don't know. But one of the first dates that Carrie and I ever went on, uh, we went to, she knows this story, she was there, but the rest of the people may not, um, was not far from here. We, we went with her family for a picnic to the river. Now, if I said that in any other state, people would be like, what do you mean? You guys understand what I mean. We were with her family, and as they cooked dinner, she and I and her little sister kind of went down and were hanging out in the river. And, and all that stuff, and, and as, I'm, as I'm wandering around, I look, and I see one of those, like, zip lines with a swing hanging from it, you know what I'm talking about, and I thought, that's, like, out of the movies, that looks so cool, and there's a ladder leading up to it, and there's a rope that would pull it back to me, surely I can make this work. Now, I want you to know there were two factors in my uh, brain at this moment. I was 16, number one, and I, my brain wasn't fully formed. I recognize that now. So what I saw was an adventure, something to have fun with, make a memory. What I didn't see was the fact that the cable and the bar were both very old, um, and what I mean by that is rusty. And, and the second factor was that I was 16, and I was hanging out with a very cute girl and her younger sister, and my brain wasn't fully formed. So what I saw was an opportunity to show off with my five-foot-nothing frame acting like Tarzan swinging through the jungle. So I climbed the ladder, I pulled the rope that brought the swing back to me, and I grabbed a hold, and I figured if I got about like 50 feet out above the river that it was plenty deep enough, I would be fine, I could swing out, drop, and it would be a fun day, and she might be impressed. That's what I thought. The problem was about 25 feet into the ride, the cable wouldn't let the swing zip any farther. And I came to a dead stop over the river, but not over the part of the river I needed to be over to drop into the deep and the swimmable water. And so I found myself over less of a river, more of a creek where I could see the rocks mocking me and my 16-year-old unformed brain, 12 feet below me. And my question is for you today, have you ever been in a situation where you needed help and you were looking for help and you were waiting for help and there was absolutely no one there to help you because they were there but they couldn't do anything, right? For about the next 10 minutes, literally, I remember hanging from this swing about 12 feet over the water thinking, what am I gonna do? Like, how am I gonna get out of this situation? I thought it was funny at first and they were laughing and I was laughing, this is okay, this is, and then as, you know how time goes on and you recognize that something is way more serious than what you thought it was? And I started thinking like, what's it gonna feel like to break my legs? (laughs) Like, I wonder what's, what's gonna happen and absolutely No one was there to help. See, today, here's the thing. I think that the larger perception of the world, of us as Christians, from the world watching the church, is that we want to talk about how people are suspended dangerously on their own, but we don't want to truly do anything to help them. That's what I'm afraid of. So, so today we're wrapping up this series that we've called Catalytic, and we've been looking at what were the defining marks of the early church, Why did the early church go from a movement of about 12 disciples who started out in Jerusalem absolutely terrified and became this movement of over a million believers in just about 200 years? 
I, I don't know if you recognize how amazing that is. I, I want you to grab onto that because something took place. And what we've been saying is that there were, there were several things that took place. They were led specifically by the Holy Spirit. God poured out the Holy Spirit on them and kind of propelled them into mission. They, they were persecuted, but they didn't see persecution as a limit. They actually saw it as a gift. They actually learned how to cross boundaries into places that they had never been, into places that were uncomfortable, which, by the way, I think if we could do, would transform who we are as a church. And then last week, we talked about how they dealt with catalytic moments by surrendering to what God wanted to do and getting outside of their own comfort levels. And, and so today, as we wrap this up, I want to challenge you not just to go to a catalytic church. Like, I think that's what we have in our minds a lot of times. Wouldn't it be cool if our church was awesome and I could go there? What I want to challenge you to is to be the catalytic church. What I want to challenge you to is, is to say this. We, as a church, new community, listen, don't miss this. We cannot be who God has made us to be without you being a part of the we. Some of you are thoroughly confused because it's early on Sunday morning. We cannot be who God has made us to be unless you are part of the we. So today is going to be a, a pretty simple message. I want to tell you about one church in the book of Acts. I want to wrap this up by looking at one more church that began to emerge. And we're just going to go verse by verse. And I want to show you some markers of this catalytic church, some things that define this. And what you have, I hope, as you walked in, if you didn't, they're, they're over there on the table. You can grab one or wave your hand and someone might care about you and bring it to you. But I've got a series of questions that as we work through this, I believe are really practical key questions that will say, do you want to be a part of the catalytic church? Do you want to be, and I don't just mean new community, I mean the church of God, that God has his church in the world to be catalytic. Do, first of all, do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants us to not just be an establishment, but to actually be a movement? Because here's what I think, if you will answer these questions and let God speak into your life about these questions, you might actually go from simply believing faith to actually living faith. So what happens is we're going to start in Acts chapter 11, looking at this church. Now, if you remember, over the course of this series, we talked about how the church started in Jerusalem. It started in the city of Jerusalem with the disciples, and Pentecost happened, and they, they became these amazing followers of Christ. But over the course of Acts, what we see is that the disciples kind of stay put in Jerusalem, but those who are scattered by the persecution end up going all over the Roman world. And what happens is that one church begins to emerge in this city called Antioch. Let's look at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Now, you can underline that because we know that's an issue here in Acts. We understand that for the Christian church at that time, they considered themselves Jewish, and so they said, we can only preach to the Jews. God has a plan for the Jews. But verse 20, check this out. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, the non-Jews, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So if you're writing down markers of the catalytic church from the church of Antioch, this is what we're going to start to understand. There's about seven things I want to draw out for you. The first one is this. This was a church that crossed boundaries. See, we've already talked about this and really digging into the nature of the fact that for the Jewish believers in Jesus, this was a huge deal. There was a boundary that they did not want to go across. They did not understand how God could reach people who were not circumcised, who were not Jewish. And in Antioch, one of the first things we learn is that they were preaching not just to the Jews, but to the Greeks as well. 
So when the messengers began to be scattered, they, the writer Luke tells us that these missionaries began to cross those boundaries, preach to Greeks, and, and this is a big deal because for the first time, the church was a church that was built across boundaries and not just by them. Did you ever think about that? Think about how you know churches, right? My guess is there's boundaries in churches. There's boundaries because, well, we're a church that has, when, when people ask you about our church, how do you describe our church? What I typically hear is, well, we have a good band, we have a great band. That's a boundary. That's an assumption. And I agree. We have an awesome band. But is that what defines the church? Well, our, our pastor wears a robe. We're a King James only church, the language of Jesus. Really? What are the boundaries that we set up? What are the boundaries that we say, this is who we are? And, and I feel like this is kind of rehashing some things that we've already talked about. But, but where do the boundaries for you lie and who God has called you to are there boundaries? And forget the church description. Just think about your own personal life. Are there family members that you won't go share with? Are there friends that you won't reach out to? Are there people that you, you work beside that you're like, well, Jesus loves everybody, but he can love that person on his own? Who are those people? What does that look like? The catalytic church, listen, chooses, chooses. Doesn't just let it happen. A lot of times I think we're like, Jesus, I'll reach out to people when you bring them into my path. The catalytic church says, no, I will reach out to people intentionally across boundaries. So key question number one on this sheet, who is someone you avoid and why? Not an easy question, right? Who is somebody that you just kind of step away from or, or a group of people that you're like, forget that because that may be the boundary that God wants you to cross. Here, here's this, the next part, verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I love that phrase. They believed and they turned to the Lord, because this is the second thing we see about this church. This was a church for lost people. It was a church for lost people. There were people that did not know Jesus, that because the Antioch church existed, they were turning to Jesus. Question, do you care about the people who don't know Jesus? And then, how much do you care? Are people turning to Jesus because of your presence in the world? Here's what I wonder about sometimes is that Jesus came into towns. Did you ever notice this? Like all the notorious sinners, you know what I'm talking about? They wanted to hang out with Jesus. People were like, oh, uh, Jesus is in town. Go get the lepers. Like go get the prostitutes. Let them come because they've got somebody to hang out with. Do we feel that way? Do the lost people feel that way about our church? Do they feel that way about the church of God right now, today? Because here's what I wonder. If, if something happened that our church no longer existed, would the community miss us? See, I think they were always, you notice they were always begging Jesus to stay. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Please stay with us. Because his presence was for lost people. Friends, I don't want to just be a church for Christians. I love all of you that follow Christ. I do. And I want to see you grow amazingly in your walk with Christ. But we want to be a church for lost people. Amen? We want to be a place where your lost friends will feel welcome, where, where you in your lostness will enter in and, and see what God wants to do. So I've asked you this already over the course of this series, but I want to ask it again, the, the next question there, key question. Who are three to five people that you want to begin praying for this year? Right? That start, because here's the thing. If you don't name them, if you don't identify them, you will never do anything about it, right? It's like saying, well, I'd like to lose weight this year, but I'm not going to the gym. <laughs> I'm not gonna eat any different. 
I care about lost people. Well, what are you gonna do differently about it? I'm asking you to, first of all, begin praying for them. I'm not asking you to preach at people. I'm not challenging you to preach at people. I'm saying there are, there are really about three things you can do. You can pray for people. You can invest in people, spend time with them, invest in their relationship, invest in your relationship with them, and then invite them into places where God wants to speak into their lives. Who are those people? Would you name them? Would you actually hold yourself accountable to that? Look at verse 22. So all these lost people are turning to Christ. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and he saw what the grace of God had done, had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, here's, here's the next thing about this church. They were connected to a larger body of believers, they were connected back to the Jerusalem church. They were a church in Antioch, but they were connected to a larger body of believers. This church did not function in isolation. They were connected to the Jerusalem church by relationship and, and, and by, by just loving each other and saying, man, we hear all the good things that God is doing. We hear all the things that God is working in this Antioch church. So what does it mean for us to be connected to the larger church? See, a lot of times I think that we don't recognize Maybe you don't recognize, I don't recognize that we are a part of a larger body, that what I said is true. We can't be the church that we're meant to be if your faith is just about you and your family. We can't do that. We can't be this church if we don't learn to live together and share together in community. That's why connection is so important. And by the way, this is entirely countercultural to American culture, and I would challenge West Virginia culture. We love to function on our own. We love to function in isolation. It's just me and Jesus, and I don't need nobody else. You ever heard that sermon preached? Just me and Jesus, no more, that's all I need. That's not biblical. That's not a biblical mentality. God creates the world. You've heard me say this. He creates Adam, and he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. Now notice, there was something that was not good before sin ever entered the world. He says, it's not good. I've got to give something more to him, Eve. I've got to let him be in connection. So understand, we as a church believe this. We're part of a larger body. We're part of the evangelical covenant church denomination. That's not so we can say, look at all our denomination lines. It's so we can be a part of something that's bigger than us. You're a part of this larger body. If you are following Christ, you need to care about this church. That's why we ask you all the time, what does it mean for you to go deeper with the life of this church? I, I see this all the time. People are kind of floating in and floating out. And so May 22nd, we're having a partnership class, right? We're asking you, this is our version of membership. Guess what rights you get? When you go through membership, guess what rights you get? You get to pour yourself out. It's a really cool club. You should come be a part of it. The partnership class, are you a part of this with us? My, my last trip that I was on, I had this, the junkiest little rental car that I've ever had. If you've ever rented cars, you just never know what you're gonna get. It was like a, a Toyota cardboard box. I don't know what the brand was. I, I don't even remember. But you know what I did? I drove it like a junky little rental car. You know what I mean by that? Like I didn't really care much about that car because it wasn't mine. It was a rental. But if I had owned that car, it would have been completely different because it would have been mine. It still might have been junky. Some of you are proud members of the Junkie Car Club. Like you know what that's like. You understand what it means to own that Junkie Car Club. But it would have been my junk, right? It would have been my junk. Many of you live your faith, listen, like you are renters of the church. 
It's, this is my rental. I come and I tithe a little. I don't tithe. I don't give 10%, but I give a little bit of money. And I, I get all the privileges of having this church here, and it should fit what I want. But if you start to own the church, guess what you get in the life of the church? You get all the junk that comes with us. Welcome to the party. <laughs> See, they were connected to the larger body. What does it mean, the third question, what does it mean for you to take ownership of your place in the body of Christ? What does that look like for you? Does it mean that you begin to prioritize attendance? Do you know the average, average committed churchgoer in America right now? It used to be like average uh, faithful attender was like all the time. Now it's like one to two times a month and you're faithful. I see people in the store, I'm, t- I'm just telling you, some of, and I'm not trying to step on toast today, but I just wanna speak what the scripture is speaking. I see people in the store all the time, and I haven't seen them for months. Like for months, they, ha- they haven't been here, and, and that's, that's fine. I don't track attendance. We don't give you gold stars for showing up. Like some of you, I think, think that I do. I don't. But I see them, and they'll, they'll talk to me. Oh, I just love our church. I'm like, what is it, your church? <laughs> like when, what does that mean to prioritize attendance? To begin to serve somewhere to begin to take care of this place, to take care of the kids in this place. Abby, I check in with Abby all the time. Hey, what's going on in Kids Town? What do you need? She's like, we need space and we need volunteers. In six years, almost six years of our existence of a church, we need space and we need volunteers. And I can't fix the space problem. We're trying, we're praying really hard, but we can't fix that. But the volunteer thing, I still don't understand other than I think many of us treat the church like we're renters and not owners. And we gotta shift that. We gotta understand that. Is it serving? Is it giving? Is it connecting with others? Romans 12, it says this, for I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Doesn't that sound awful? Like if we were really truly to do that, if we were really truly to say, Jesus, I have followed you, I've believed in you, and now I'm gonna offer my body as a living sacrifice to you. Do you know what happens to sacrifices? They die, thank you. Thank you for being awake. They die, they pour themselves out. They say, you know what, I'm a living sacrifice. I expect to not be living after this. I expect to empty myself for the sake of what God wants to do. So what does it mean for you to take ownership of your place in the body of Christ? Verse 25, am I hitting people hard enough? Are we, is this feeling good today? For you? Maybe not. Verse 25, here's what it says in Acts 11. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now that is so critical for you to understand. This is the first time this body of Jesus followers are identified as Christians, and and here's why. Because they were, uh, another marker of the church, they were intentionally pursuing discipleship. See, the Catalytic Church at Antioch was doing intentional discipleship. It wasn't discipleship by accident. See, I believe this is what made Antioch the church that it was. All, All this stuff that happened in Jerusalem, right? Jesus ascending, Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit being poured out, persecution, all those are really big things in the life of the church, but at those moments, they were not known as Christians. Nobody was like, oh, there were 3,000 people that followed Jesus, and now we're going to call them Christians. They had a really big church. 
They had a really big rally. It was a big conference and convention, and Peter preached in multiple language, and they had interpreters, and oh, now we can call them Christians because they've established themselves. They, they're selling books. They have a brand. They have all this cool stuff happening. Their band is amazing. <laughs> Nobody called them Christians after that. But here, here at Antioch, something set them apart. Do you know what the word Christian really means? It means little Christs. That's what they were called. And actually, it was actually the community around them that in many, many theologians believe they were actually mocking them. Oh, look at you people being like Jesus. You're like a whole bunch of little Jesuses. That's what they were saying. And what they're saying is why are they being like Jesus? It's because... They were being taught and they were living out the things that they were being taught. One, one quote I read this week said, the church is to be so identified with Christ that outsiders cannot find any other socio-ethnic label by which to characterize its people. This is what I love. This church was so diverse. You know how you have groups or crowds like, like we're the 20-somethings. We're the retirees. They don't act that cool, but that's kind of what's going on. We're like this group at middle school or this group at the high school. Like we're all this. They saw so many diverse people in this setting that they said there's no other way to describe them than the only thing they have in common is that they're acting like little Jesuses. So look at you, you little Jesuses. That's what they're saying because they're being discipled. They were spending their time talking and learning, eating and desiring to be made more like Jesus. They spent time with leaders. Would you pour into me, Saul and Barnabas? Would you teach us what it means to follow Jesus? This was intentional. And I want you to know this. Listen, I love all of you. I'm glad that most of you believe in Jesus. You've chosen to follow Jesus. And if you haven't yet, you're welcome to struggle through that and pursue and see what God wants to say to you. But listen, even if you have believed in Jesus for 35, 45, 60 years, discipleship does not happen by accident. You will not accidentally grow closer to Jesus. It doesn't happen. It will be intentional. It takes time, effort, energy, and tenacity. Do you know why? Because the word discipleship is very much like discipline. It's very similar. It takes reprioritizing the things in your life, your pace of life, to say the major, the only, the primary focus in my life is to get closer to Jesus. I've got to reprioritize my time. I've got to reprioritize my resources. I've got to reprioritize my relationships. In fact, I would say the level of discipleship you take on will directly affect the way you most identify with Christ as his follower. So this fourth question And by the way, I don't expect you to answer all these right now. You might take these home and process it over the course of this week. What has to happen for you to increase your level of discipleship? For you to say, my faith is my own. Parents, can I challenge you? What has to happen for you to prioritize discipleship in your kids' lives? What has to shift to make Jesus the center, the ultimate focus? Maybe you need to find a mentor. Hey, I I don't know how to grow closer to Jesus. I need someone that will lead me in this. Maybe you need a group that will walk beside you that are, that are hanging out and spending time asking God what he wants to do in their lives. You need a plan. You need something to work through, whatever it is. You've got to take those steps. I, I'm becoming so convinced of this, and I'm harping on this, I realize, but I'm becoming so convinced that discipleship is the key of what makes us the church that's going to be faithful that I think, I think it's even shifting like, what do our programs look like? I don't, I don't know, and we'll be talking about that in the coming months. Are we really doing what we say we're doing? 
Are we really pursuing? I would love, like, I would love if we could start measuring our church because I think sometimes people are like, well, how's your church doing? And what we mean by that is how many people sit there in attendance on Sundays for the 75 minutes you have them? And that's how we gauge success in the church. Are you with me? Here's what I would love. How many people are intentionally being discipled? If we had 20 people that were intentionally being discipled, I think we could shift the culture of Buchanan as a whole. Right? If we had five people that were intentionally saying, I want someone to pour into me, I want to learn how to be a disciple, I want to learn how to make disciples, I think we could shift the culture of the world around us immediately. I could keep going. Verse 27, here's what it says. During this time, as they're being taught by Saul and Barnabas, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, now this is the disciples at Antioch, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Here's what, what's happening. This is what they're doing. They're becoming generous givers. This is what made them catalytic. This is so interesting because here's what's going on. The Jerusalem church is persecuted. The followers of Christ scatter. They build this church at Antioch. And then the Antioch church says, hey, we heard there's gonna be a famine. So that Jerusalem church, let's send money back to the church that planted us so that they can keep doing the ministry they are called to do so that famine cannot happen in their congregation. Let me tell you this. This is like Bobby starting his church and with 30 people being like, hey, New Community Buchanan, we're gonna provide resources for you. That's, that's how radical this is, that the people in this church in Antioch said, we are a mission church. We have to give what God has, has called us to give. And I'm telling you, this is so convicting to me because it directly combats what so often permeates non-catalytic churches. What permeates the non-catalytic church is a mentality of scarcity, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a mentality and an operation that says, we will never have enough. We'll never have enough money. If we only we had more money, we'd be okay. And I want you to know, new community, listen, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of, of what this church has accomplished, that in the course of about two years' time, 92 children in Ethiopia have been sponsored. I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud that, that, that $30,000 from this little tiny church in Buchanan, West Virginia, said we're gonna, we're gonna get this money and we're gonna allow a water project to go into a community that has never had water. That we said we're gonna try to purchase land for a church and, and we raised about $20,000 or $30,000 in about a month's time. I love that. I'm so proud of that. And, and that, that that mortgage, I think in about two, somebody would have to correct me, but about two years, about half of that mortgage has been paid off. Praise God for the generosity that we, we walked into this building the first time and we were like, man, it's a church. This is awesome. We'll take it. And then we all went, oh, shoot, we don't have chairs. And in seven days time, we bought all these chairs, which were not cheap, by the way that that happened, that God did amazing things. And it's amazing that this church in Antioch was planted by the Jerusalem church, is now sending resources to help the Jerusalem church. But the convicting part of this for me is that so often I feel like when it comes to financially giving, I focus on what I'm lacking rather than what I've been given. That's the mentality of scarcity. I focus on what I'm lacking, what I don't have, what I don't have enough of, instead of God saying, I've given you much and I want you to bless others much. I don't want that. I don't want that for us as a church. And, and I just wanna speak this to you out of complete honesty. The greatest tangible limitations for us right now as a church, 
I'm not saying spiritual conditions. I'm saying tangible limitations are a building and financial resources. Those are the greatest limitations we face, right? We can't do anything about the building other than pray fast and trust God's timing, amen? And this is a great building. God has done amazing things here. But we wanna see what God does with a good building. <laughs> we wanna see what happens. But financial resources, listen, I, I just, I, and again, please, I, I hope you hear me teaching out of scripture and not putting my agenda on this. I just, there are things that I feel like we give to projects so well that, it, that people come and oh, we gotta send 10 kids to camp. We, can we cover that? Absolutely, because this church will rise up when there are specific needs. Where I think God needs to challenge me and challenge us is if you gave faithfully and regularly as a discipline, what this church could do would be unbelievable. I'm just saying that. If we actually began to work, I'm not saying get there right now because I know some of you are in debt and you gotta work out of that. If we could just start to move towards what God has called us to give regularly, set it up, automate the important, it would be unbelievable what this church could accomplish. I'm just telling you. We're gonna do ministry whether we have money or not. It's gonna happen. But what does God wanna do if we were faithful? Catalytic Church will be transformed to give sacrificially because we understand Christ's sacrifice. So that fifth question, does your financial giving reflect a heart that understands grace? Please don't hear this as guilt. Do you understand grace? And if not, what needs to change? And this is, the, this is the Antioch church. But here's the thing about the Antioch church. It jumps in Acts chapter 13. We find out a couple more things about it. This is where I'm gonna kind of start to, to push into this. Verse one, now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets, there were teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Here's the next marker of this church. There were multiple worshiping leaders. Okay, there were multiple worship, worshiping leaders. Barnabas, he was a landowner and a Levite. The dude had money. That's what was going on here. Okay, he was a Cypriot. He had money, he had land. There was Simeon from Niger. Guess where he was from? Africa. He's a black man. That's, that's exactly what they're saying. There was Lucius, who was another African from Cyrene. There was Menaean, who had grown up in the court of Herod. That means he was wealthy aristocracy. And then there was Saul, who was this Jewish intellectual Pharisee. See, I want you to understand this. When I say there were multiple worshiping leaders, here's the first thing. There were multiple. In the presence of God, your differences make us better, not worse. I was sitting a few weeks ago with a few of you, and we started, somehow you all got on this political conversation. And I started laughing because I was like, listen, and it was, you were not all agreeing, but you were all nice about it. I was like, this is what we have every single Sunday morning in our congregation. And I said, you're the nice ones. Like, you're the ones that can do this well. But we have multiple perspectives, multiple experiences today. And I want you to know this. The growing catalytic churches in America today are the most diverse churches. They're crossing boundaries. They're inviting everyone in because their perspective is good. But they're multiple, listen, worshiping leaders. They're worshiping and fasting. This means you step up to God when you know you can step up. Here's what I wrote down, and I don't know if this will make sense to you. It made sense when I wrote it, and then this morning I was like, I don't know if this makes sense. I think a lot of times we're showing up and being a part of the church as if there's spiritually handicapped parking spaces for us. What I mean is you're attending, and you feel like I get to sit here, kind of the rental owner thing, but but I get to be here and, and I get to have God pour into me, but I'm handicapped in my spirituality and I don't need to do anything with my spirituality. 
If God would, would set me free, then, then maybe I could do something. But I don't, you can fill in the blank, I, I don't know enough about the Bible. I've got too much sin in my life. I've got to fix these parts of my life. And, and so I'll come to church and receive the blessings of the church, but don't ask me to be a leader. Don't, don't ask me. And, and, and what we're lacking is, is, again, exactly what Ephesians 4 says, that, that God, Christ himself, look at this, gave who? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. He gave all those people for what reason? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I, I love this verse because it doesn't say God gave the pastors who went to seminary and got the special robe and the thing that goes over the robe to do all the work of getting people ready for works of service. He doesn't say that. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers this is actually, you can go online, and I've put it under this question, fivefoldsurvey.com. You can go and assess yourself of which of these things God has called you to be. You want to know really good news? Some of you will not be surprised by this. I'm not a good pastor. I'm not a very good shepherd. I'm apostolic. Like, I love starting new ministries. If you want to have fun with me, come to me and be like, I've got an idea. Okay, let's do it. That's where I function so good. An evangelist, I love being with non-Christians. That's what makes me a terrible pastor. I would rather hang out with non-Christians most of the time because I wanna see them come closer to Christ. Stop laughing so much. I wanna, I, that's who I wanna be. And then I'm like an off-the-charts teacher so I could sit and teach all day long. You would be bored out of your mind, but that's what I love. So some of you in this congregation right now are gifted and wired and probably think, well, he doesn't care enough about people. You're right, but I bet you're a pastor and I bet you're called to it. So why don't you step up into the things that God has called us to be? Some of you are never coming back to this church. <laughs> That's the sixth question. Which of the spiritual leadership gifts has God granted you? You can check it out on that survey. Why do you doubt your own spiritual abilities? What needs to happen to overcome that doubt? And then the very last part of this Antioch church, verse three. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, on Bar Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them off. This marker is that they were a sending church. See, what if we became a launch pad for ministry? You guys know, and this is my apostolic heart, right? I didn't come here to plant one church in Buchanan. That's not what we wanted to do. We felt like God was saying there needs to be a network, a movement of churches, a, a, a grouping of ministries that are launched out of what I've done in Buchanan. We wanna see people sent out. I, I believe we're called to Elkins. I also believe we're called to Morgantown and maybe Lewisburg and maybe Charleston and maybe Huntington and maybe places that we don't even know about yet. I have a Google map, and I'm not gonna tell you where, but there's about 23 locations across West Virginia that I'm praying, God, would you raise up people to send them out? Would you show us what it means to be faithful? And listen, friends, I don't know what that means. I don't know that we can do that with a full-time pastor everywhere we go, because here's the thing. Some of you, maybe, are called to be the missionaries. Some of you have connections into neighborhoods, and we're called to plan a ministry there. And it's gonna look completely different than what this looks like. But what if we're a launch pad for ministry? God might be sending you down the street. He might be sending you to the next town or to the next tiny community. He might be sending you all the way across the globe. But the question is, will you listen? Will you be ready when he wants to send you out? That's, that's that last question. If you had no limits, no limits, 
well, I can't serve God because I don't have enough money. I don't have this, I don't have that. If you had no limits, where or to whom do you think God is sending you right now? To places, different places, to people, specific people or people groups or communities. What does your heart break for? Where is God sending you and what does that look like? As we close, in about two minutes, I'm gonna give you four things that I think limit us from being this catalytic church. Here we go. First one is this, we're too busy to care. Here's what I think keeps us from being beyond Sunday's catalytic type of follower of Christ. We're too busy to care. Listen, and again, these are not guilt statements. These are things that I'm struggling with. I want to care deeply about the world around us, but here's what I recognize. Often, my life is too busy to care about other people's lives. Are you with me? Some of you are not, but maybe you just feel uncomfortable. We get so busy, don't we? What does God wanna show us? What does he wanna slow down in us to help us begin to care for the world like Jesus cared? Here's the second thing. We're too lacking in confidence to go. Many of you have friends and you sit here and and you probably feel like, man, I I do have friends who don't know Jesus. I don't know how to reach them. I I just don't have enough. And, And you're just not confident enough. Can I just encourage you, friends? I love you and I want you to know this. God will equip you for what he calls you to. God, if he calls you, he'll equip you to do it. You know, be intentional about your discipleship. Grow in it. Pursue what Christ has. But God will equip you in those ways. Stop worrying about your confidence. Here's the third thing. We're too guilty to be free. Many of us are walking around feeling like we're so bottom of the barrel when it comes to God's kingdom. Right? He's got all the spiritual elites and all the conference speakers and all the book writers and all the mega church pastors. Here's what I'm seeing. I don't know if you recognize this in our culture. About every, not every, a ton of the mega church elite pastors, elite leaders have morally crumbled because they thought they could do it. And what I want to say to you is what if you could lead into the kingdom of God built out of your failure towards freedom? Because that's grace. And then here's the last thing, and we kind of hit this already, but we're too in debt to give. We're too held up in debt to give. And see, I want you to know this, because I've lived this and I understand this, sometimes this, this choice to give time, talents, resources, finances back to Christ isn't about, well, I gotta give my 10%, and I don't know how many, because sometimes it may be working yourself out of debt to get to a place where you can begin to be generous. And I want, I, we're rooting you on to overcome these things. As we close, I want to show you a clip uh, from, a, from a film that you may or may not have heard of called Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Most of you have heard of it. And there's this scene, and it's in the book as well, but, but there's this scene where there's this community, this kingdom looking for help, looking for rescue. And they're calling out to another kingdom saying, we need you, and, and I want you to check out how they call out for help. Watch this. So here's what I wonder. These fires being lit across the mountains to call out for help, to call out, is it time? Is it time for us to go and help? See, the, the Rohan, the kingdom of Rohan, couldn't respond until they saw the signals. Friends, here's what I wonder. Is the world crying out, longing for a catalytic church that will respond to their brokenness? longing for people that will show up and care for them and extend grace to them and cross boundaries and care about lost people. And as long as we're a non-catalytic church, are we missing the fires? Are we missing the places where people around us are crying out? Here's the, the better way to say this. What if the world is hanging from that swing over the river, dangling dangerously, looking for rescue, and the church is sitting by going, well, we hope you survive. 
Hope you figure it out. What if we're the only catalytic church that will respond? I'm asking you to look today at those seven questions. I'm asking you to process what does it mean as we go into, listen, next Sunday is the party for Christians of the year. It's the place where we win. It's the place where all the news media, all the politics, all the celebrity crap, all the stuff that's gone on in our world is diminished because all the attention for one Sunday out of the year goes back to Jesus. I'm wondering if you'll enter this resurrection saying, God, I'll be catalytic. Just show me what it means. Show me what it means to step up. Let's pray together.